Good morning. My name is Ruby Hines, and our scripture reading today is found in Daniel 3, verses 8 through 18. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the words, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. It's a wonderful gift for me to be able to be with you this morning. This congregation has had an impact on my life for many, many years. In fact, I had just become a Christian early in college when I met the first group of people that I have encountered over the course of my life that have been affected by this church. They were people that were also connected to Park Street Church in Boston. And I was attending college in the Northwest, and somehow here was a church in Southern California and a church in Boston that was making a difference in lives in Washington State. And that was just an amazing introduction to the breadth and range of what God can do. So this congregation for many years has mattered to me personally. It also matters to me, of course, because of now the connection between this congregation and Fuller Seminary, where I've first had the opportunity over the last four years to teach and more recently have stepped into this new role at Fuller. It's a very exciting and wonderful season. Thank you for your prayers and support for the seminary and for all the ways that our lives and ministries have intersected over these years. This morning I'd like us to think about something that I think really matters in scripture and it's the text that we're going to look at as a paradigm in a way that challenges us to think about where we really live. Where do we live? As we think about that this morning, let's pray. Oh God, by your grace we ask for your spirit's work to speak to us by your word this morning, that we might have ears to hear, and that hearing we might have a willingness to trust, to follow, to the glory of your great name we pray. 
Amen. Before we come to this text in Daniel, I would like to set it in context. You know that there are two great paradigms in the Old Testament. The first paradigm is the paradigm of the Exodus. It's really a story of Israel's suffering under Egyptian cruelty and oppression, them crying out to God for deliverance, God's provision of that deliverance which leads them out of Egypt, across the wilderness, and eventually into the Promised Land. It's a paradigm that's fairly straightforward. It's clear who the good guys are, that would be Israel. It's clear who the bad guys are, that would be Egypt. And it's clear what it is that's needed, that God would simply take God's people and deliver them from Egypt and take them into the promised land. And the unfolding of that story in Israel's life is, of course, essential to their national identity to this very day. It's essential to the sense of place. It's essential to their sense of God's provision, of the legacy of God's faithfulness. When Jesus comes, he comes in a way to reaffirm the significance of an exodus. But now it's no longer just an exodus from Egypt, but it's an exodus from the dominion of sin. And the deliverance into which we're invited is the deliverance that Jesus calls in many ways the kingdom of God, to enter into the fullness, the ultimate consummation of God's purposes, God's shalom. That great arc continues, and part of where we live is that we live in the context of this great exodus. Now, it's interesting when we think about the national life of our own country here in the United States, that there is a great sense that our national life has been built off of an exodus paradigm. A lot of the reason why immigrant people have always come to these shores has been in part to leave behind something that they want to leave there in order to come here in believing that somehow this is going to be more like a promised land than they thought that place was. And whatever that place was, some people arrived perhaps on the shores of New Jersey and thought, this is it. And others thought, well, maybe not. Let's keep moving. And as people progressively moved from one coast across to the other until they eventually came to California, of course, which is our version of the promised land. Now, when all of this gets wedded together in this very interesting and somewhat bizarre way that, in which the Christian faith merges with American consumerism, we now have a vision of promised land living, which is really Exodus-like. God should provide us with a promised land. And if God hasn't yet provided us with the promised land, then we should simply make our own promised land. And so the secular version of this promised land vision is to say, I know, I'll remodel my promised land. I'll buy a new promised land. I will move to a promised land that's even more promising than this land. I will paint the promised land. I'll dress up the promised land. I'll pay rapt attention to every detail in my promised land to make sure that my promised land is the promised land that I want. And then I will thank God for the promised land. And the arc of our discipleship can be deeply wedded to a sense that God is the God that simply promised us a promised land and now we're going to claim it, find it, keep it. It's a very interesting paradigm. We'll come back to that in a moment. Do we live in the promised land? Is that our vision of what the Christian life is meant to be? Let's pick up the second great paradigm of the Old Testament, which is the story of exile. The story of exile is really quite a different story. In Israel's life, if they were confident of anything, they were confident that they had their worship right. After all, they had the one true and living God, that God had been providing for them over the centuries and ultimately brings them into the promised land and ultimately brings them to a context in which they have the right architecture, the right liturgy, the right sound system, the right form of worship, 
the annual ritual cycle that told them again and again who they were and how God had been faithful to them. All of those things were in place. And yet God says to Israel over and over again, I find your worship bankrupt. It's bankrupt because it has all the right form, but it actually is absent the most essential reality, which is the demonstration that your life looks like my life. You claim that you worship me, but when I look at your worship, when I think about the things that you attend to, the things that actually matter, the prophets say over and over again, what I discover is that your worship is really about yourself. It's really that you simply seek your way. Of course, you want me to baptize your way and call it my own. But what I want is instead for you to be people who begin to look like me, who demonstrate in your lives, in your character, in your demonstrations of justice, that your use of power represents my use of power, that you attend to the people that I attend to, that you see the people that are most in need and you respond in a way that demonstrates my heart. And so that indictment comes to Israel over and over and over again, and yet they just simply stand on the grounds of believing they have the right worship after all. They just say it louder, harder, more vigorously until God will say through the prophet Isaiah, for example, I hate your worship. And the discipline that God sends Israel in that season of its life is the exile. Now here it's not so clear who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. Oh yes, they're taken captive by Babylon. But now that they live in Babylon, in exile, it's a context in which they are implicated as bad guys as well as good guys. They're people who share in a narrative that's a lot more complicated, where they're there really because of their faithlessness despite God's faithfulness. And they're there to work out a discipline now that says, if I strip you of all of the signs of your worship, if I take away your implements of worship and desecrate the temple and create a different context in which you're meant to live, and I say, now how here, as exiles, as strangers in a strange land, how will you demonstrate that you belong to me? And that's really what the whole exilic season in Israel's life is about. And I want to suggest that Jesus likewise picks up this image of exile and says that the people of God are now meant to live as those who are in exile, strangers in a strange land. And at the time that Jesus came, as you know, they were under, in that season of Israel's life, under Roman oppression. And now again, they were called upon to say, who do we belong to? How will we demonstrate that we are strangers in a strange land, that we belong to God? When we come to the significance of an image that Jesus uses, like, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, that we are called to be light and salt, those images only make sense if, in fact, we live in exile. If we live in the promised land, you don't need salt and light because the whole nature of promised land is that you've arrived. But if you live in exile, in a culture and context which is putrefying and decaying, you need some sort of active agent that's going to resist that, which is what salt does. If you live in a context of darkness, you need light. And what are we to be? We're to live in exile as salt and light, as witnesses to a reality that's beyond the exilic circumstances in which we find ourselves, that points to a God that meets us in exile. One of the questions really then is, where do we live? Do we believe that we primarily live in the exodus, or do we believe that we live in the exile? I want to suggest that, in fact, Scripture will teach us that in the end, we live in exodus, but that is in the end. 
When God brings all things together, we live in the context of the assurance that God will finally make all things right. But today, while that great arc of the Exodus continues and will one day bring us to the fulfillment of all of God's longings and desires for us, the fulfillment of the kingdom of God, today, today I think we will do a whole lot more justice to God and to the life that God calls us to live if we understand ourselves to be exiles. People who live as strangers in a strange land. Who feel the dissonance between ourselves and the life that we've been called to live. Who are needing to be people who show up as light and salt in a culture that is in decay. A culture of darkness. And it's in that way that I want us to think then for a few moments this morning about the book of Daniel. Daniel is written about an exile. About a set of exiles, in fact. Daniel and his friends. In the chapter 1 of Daniel, what we see, of course, is a brief summary of Nebuchadnezzar's plundering of Israel, taking and desecrating the temple, removing some of its implements and signs of sacred use. And now Daniel and his friends, considered the best and the brightest, are the ones who are invited all the way into Nebuchadnezzar's house. And chapter 1 of the book of Daniel is really about how are they going to remember who they are in the midst of exile. They decide that the way they're going to do this is through the practice of dietary law so that every time they eat, they remember that though we live in Nebuchadnezzar's house, we belong to Yahweh. Imagine the significance of that. An act of daily remembrance. An act several times every day that every time they eat, they say, oh, we live in Nebuchadnezzar's house, it's true. We're given new literature, new jobs, new names, a whole new culture to live in and to, in some ways, assimilate into. But we know that we belong to Yahweh. And so every time we eat, we feed ourselves remembering that we belong to one who seems, perhaps, to not be present, but who, in fact, defines the core of our identity. Chapter 2 is a very interestingly different chapter. Here... Nebuchadnezzar, who's represented as clearly the most maniacal and megalomaniac person on the scene, ends up having a very, very anxious dream. It's a nightmare, in fact. It's such a significant nightmare that he longs for some sort of interesting and authentic, trustworthy spiritual interpretation. It's fascinating that in the writing of the book of Daniel, in fact, Nebuchadnezzar's anxiety is highlighted to such a degree because earlier this sense of his power makes him seem impervious to any kind of threat. But now here there is this unsettling quality. It's a fascinating thing, I think, that that the observation about Nebuchadnezzar suggests that even though in the midst of the dominant force that may be around us, we might think everything looks like everything is just fine with them, and yet here, here Nebuchadnezzar unveils an unexpected vulnerability. He doesn't want the usual words from his soothsayers and enchanters and magicians to interpret the dream. So he sets a different test. He says, this time what I want is a truly trustworthy word. I I don't want the usual song and dance. I need to know whether what you're going to say to me is actually real, trustworthy, reliable. So I need you to tell me the dream and its interpretation. Now, the enchanters and soothsayers, no, 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 see, Nebuchadnezzar, the way this works is, first you tell us the dream and then we will tell you the interpretation. And he says, no, 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 I know that what you're doing is just trying to bide time. It's the usual dance. No, I need a trustworthy word. I want you to tell me the dream and the interpretation. Then I will know whether, in fact, your word could be trusted. Well, Daniel and his friends 
gather around. They cry out to God. They receive an answer to their prayers that gives them the insight into the dream and its interpretation. And it's no wonder that Nebuchadnezzar was terrified because, in fact, it was a dream about his own disintegrating kingdom. The fact that everything that he now owns and triumphs over is going to fall into disarray and chaos. He may be at the crowning top of that in all of his golden glory, but at the bottom there's mud and stubble and decay and the whole thing is finally going to crash down. It's a fascinating image. And in that context, Daniel and his friends come and they say, now Nebuchadnezzar, you need to understand that this word that we're going to offer you did not come from us. You're absolutely right. There's no one on heaven or earth that could answer this apart from God. And our God has actually told us this. But our God raises up kings and deposes kings, by the way. And that God has now given us a word, an authentic, trustworthy word, to tell you, in fact, that this is the horrific fact. Your kingdom and its life will full ultimately crash. Fascinatingly, Nebuchadnezzar thanks them for this authentic word. It's very interesting. This is a moment in which they understand that in fact they've given the worst news that Nebuchadnezzar could have imagined, and yet he receives it gratefully because it's true. It's also fascinating to me that when they pray, they pray for not only God's insight and understanding about this dream and its interpretation for their sake, but they pray for it for the sake of all the soothsayers, the pagan worshippers that were around them, those who were their rivals, you might say, as interpreters of dreams. And it's interesting that instead of claiming some sort of special prerogative that thought of it as sort of like we're going to demonstrate that our God's better than your God. Our God is the one who can tell us the dream and its interpretation, neener, 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 unlike your God. Instead, they pray for the well-being of the other enchanters and magicians. It's a very interesting image. It's frankly more like light and salt. It's wanting the well-being, as Jeremiah 29 says, seeking the welfare of the city, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. There's this instinct, this exilic instinct, that isn't just about themselves. It's about actually seeking the welfare of others as well. All this brings us to chapter 3, a chapter which is well-known probably to most, if not all of us, a story of this dramatic, burning, fiery furnace. Now, I want to suggest that often the book of Daniel is thought to be a book of all kinds of dangerous and dramatic stories, but I think the greatest danger is not the fiery furnace or later the lion's den, it's actually the felt board. By that I mean the two-dimensional Sunday school reductionism of this story into something that feels flat, non-dimensional, a kind of quaint anachronism, instead of actually this vigorous expression of what it means to live as faithful exiles. By chapter 3, what happens is that the soothsayers and enchanters watch as Nebuchadnezzar builds this golden statue, which had in fact been the, the focus of the nightmare in chapter 2. And some who are watching this occur and who understand what it is that's being asked for, that they would worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up, have heard and memorized and understand, understood the whole rubric of how it's supposed to unfold. Did you hear in the language of it as it was read a moment ago? It captures it so amazingly. The very rhythm of the form, I think, suggests precisely what it is that the text is really trying to say. You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble, you are to fall down and worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And then, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, 
lyre, trigon, harp, and every musical ensemble, you shall worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And over and over and over again, this mesmerizing rhythm is set in motion. It strikes me that idolatry always works best when it's set in the context of a mesmerizing rhythm. It always works best when we just receive the cue. And upon receiving the cue, we know just exactly what we're meant to do, just exactly how our life is set in motion once we hear that song. This is the USC fight song. This is the California Golden Bears fight song. Or changing context, this is the impact of the word sale. Sale? Sale? A sale? What's on sale? Where is it on sale? What's on sale? How much is it on sale? What would I do with it? There's going to be an Apple announcement. An Apple announcement? Really? About what? About what where? It's a mesmerizing rhythm. It's what advertisers rely on every day to capture our heart and mind, to give us a sense of the significance of what's being offered to us. Just set in motion the mesmerizing rhythm. Just give us a small little silver amazing thing and just hold it out there and it draws us. And all the choices that follow from that are, seem so simple. They seem even, why, isn't it interesting you don't even have to think about it? That's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is relying on. Just set in motion the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, harp, and entire musical ensemble. And you shall worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Our socialization plays this in so many different terms. So we think, for example, of the, of the mesmerizing, mesmerizing rhythms of nationalism, the mesmerizing rhythms of fear, the mesmerizing rhythms of cultural anxiety, economic influence, the announcement of a headline that is like a mesmerizing rhythm that sets in motion the purchase of a newspaper, the avid reading of a story, the anxiety around issues of fame, the way in which you name certain stars and people just fall in line and do exactly what that name evokes. All of that is part of it. So is, so is racism. An amazing sense that subtly, quietly, in our hearts, in our circumstances, immigrant, illegal immigrant. These are mesmerizing rhythms. This week in our national life, we've been experiencing in Congress the mesmerizing rhythms of left and right. And depending on which instincts we may have and which rhythm we give attention to, People have fallen in line in a highly predictable way that exactly mirrors the fissure lines that exist in the life of our national experience. It's just the mesmerizing rhythms. So we have to ask ourselves, how attentive would we be to that? What strength would we have in the face of mesmerizing rhythms? It's fascinating that in chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have the strength of character and mind and heart to not bow down. Those who watch them not bow down. Those whose lives have been saved in chapter 2 go to Nebuchadnezzar and they say, now Nebuchadnezzar, we of course have bowed down and worshipped the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up because we know that when we hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, and entire musical ensemble, we've done exactly what you asked of us. But there are certain Jews 
you know, those whose neck you saved in chapter 2, who saved our neck, well, now we're turning them into you because they have actually failed to bow down to your gods. We think you'd like to know that. We just thought we'd like to report it. So they report it. And Nebuchadnezzar, in characteristic rage, goes into a fit and says, how could it possibly be? And they say, well, it could definitely be. Why don't you call them in? He goes to them, in fact. He goes to them, he says, now, is it true that that you do not worship the golden statue that I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, he tries to get the mesmerizing rhythms going. He tries to get them to just say, bow down, bow down, I'm going to give you another opportunity. And now, full of rage, with the fire heating behind him, seven times hotter than it's ever been heated before. And in that context, it's as though he's saying, there is nothing and no one, even the gods in heaven, who could save you from my anger, from my wrath. That the most amazing thing happens. It's the highlight of the, of the whole text. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, Oh, you silly, silly little man. You think you actually control our lives. You, you think that who we are and what we're about is really determined by you. We think that somehow you think that you could set in motion the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, an entire musical ensemble, and we would worship the golden statues that you have set up? Oh, you silly little person. Like, what are you thinking? We're able to distinguish the greater danger from the lesser danger. And the greater danger that they are absolutely clear about is the danger of the idolatry, not the danger of the fire. They're clear that, in fact, the, the real risk is that they're going to worship a false god. Not that they're going to somehow simply lose their life. They say we might lose our life, we might not lose our life. God might save us, he might not save us. But whether he saves us or whether he doesn't save us, we're not going to bow down and worship the golden statue that you have set up. They are, in other words, unhooked. Entirely unhooked. Are you? It's really important, I think, that as we think about the meaning of our discipleship, that we consider the places of assimilation. Study after study after study is done about the church in America, and study after study after study suggests that there's almost nothing distinctive about the American church from the rest of our culture. Oh, we might do something different on Sunday morning. We might show up more regularly in a church building of some kind or a gathering of Christian people. But our values our patterns of life, our habits, our use of money, our care for one another, our response to people who are in need. Broadly speaking, it's just caught up in the same mesmerizing rhythms of everyone else. Very little evidence that the church distinctively, peculiarly belongs to God. Is evidently a church, a community of people that respond to a different set of issues. Why is that? Because, frankly, we are, as I think this text implicitly suggests, we are easily, 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 easily caught in a system, in a pattern, in a ritual of idolatry. We could more easily than not find ourselves bowing down and worshiping the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And we might try to make it slightly more immaterial. We might say, but, but I'm not really bowing ha- down in my heart. I mean, I know that in my heart I'm not bowing down. I'm saving my neck by bowing down, but I'm not really bowing down, bowing down. I mean, I wouldn't do that. But in actual fact, we often do bow down. I often 
bow down. And there are all kinds of things that can capture my attention that in some way or another seem to service my interests. One time I was speaking at a conference that had such bright lights on the stage that I really wasn't able to, uh, to see very much beyond that. Almost no one in front of me was actually visible, but there was a video monitor here that had an image of me. And then on this side of the stage, there was another large video monitor that had another image of me. And then, of course, there was me. And I thought, this is sort of the postmodern trinity. There's me, and there's me, and there's me. This is the world I've always wanted. This is what I was made for. I was made for this world where everybody seems to be raptly attending to me, exactly in agreement with me, doing just what I would want to have done, caring about what I care about, seeing the world in the way that I see the world. It's all about me. And if I was going to be in a 12-step program, it would need to be Idolaters Anonymous, and I would need to stand and say, Hi, I'm Mark, and I'm an idolater. And my idol is me. Now, I want to suggest that I may not be the only one in the room that does this. That, in fact, me is a very happy, easy idol. It doesn't seem so garish as a large golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. I seldom set music to my idolatry. I would never overtly ask anyone to bow down to me. If they did, that would be fine, but if they, I would never ask that. I would never, never ask that. Now, that would be a little tasteless. I'd feel awkward about that. But, but I, you know, I, I would be okay if they were going to go along with what I wanted to have happen in the world. That would be a, a happy thing to me. But really, my life, our lives, can be defined by me, by the small little country that's Mark Laberton, bounded north, south, east, and west by Mark Laberton. And that's an idol that I can easily bow down to on almost any given day. And it's true that I'm much farther along and less prone to do that now than I've been before. But to say that I'm utterly free of that reality, oh, that's, that's not true. There was an article in the New York Times a few years ago in Better Economic Times when it focused in on a man who had been a, a, an inventor of some kind who'd become a gazillionaire and who could fly privately from one side of the country to the other. And as commercial air traffic travel has become such a problem, this was an easy way of trying to escape it. He said for himself, he, it all came to its culminating moment one day when he was flying from one coast to the other. He, as he said, I was of course flying in first class. There were people uh, that were, of course, filling the rest of the plane. There was a woman in business that had a baby that cried from one coast all the way to the other. He said, that settled it. I decided I'm never flying commercial again. And then he gave us his mission statement. It was this. He said, because I've decided that the really important thing to me is to exclude from my life anyone who might bum me out. Okay, let's just meditate on that for just a moment. It's a kind of cultural mantra for just a minute. I've decided that the really important thing to me is to exclude from my life anyone who might bum me out. Now, when I first read that, I thought, oh, that's just disgusting, until I counted about 
three or four beats and then suddenly realized it seemed also strangely, embarrassingly familiar. I don't get to practice it at the elite level of this guy. I don't get to fly around in private jets. But it's not true that I don't like organizing my life to exclude people who might bum me out. Is this not why I have caller ID on my phone? Is this not what Mark Zuckerberg understood so well when in the development of Facebook it was possible so seamlessly, so unnoticeably to friend and also to unfriend people on Facebook? To just quietly just remove them from the list. No one really knew. They just were here and then they weren't there. I can just conveniently exclude them from my life. Does it not actually explain a great deal about ways that I use my time, about where I go, about who I spend time with and who I don't. The first time I had the privilege of having an administrative assistant, it suddenly dawned on me that this person existed in order to actually fulfill this hope. That this person would attend to excluding people from my life who might bum me out. That was what a really great administrative assistant does. And all of that can happen seamlessly, unnoticeably. It's just the mesmerizing rhythms. I'm just, I'm just living my life. I'm just living my sociology. I'm just doing what seems so natural and so obvious and so inconsequential and so ordinary. Unless I'm willing to let my life be examined by a different God than me. By someone and something that makes a greater claim. That's meant to call me to act in a different way. To not bow down to golden statues that simply fit my prerogative but fail to mirror the character of God. That is an entirely different call. And that is the vocation that we are meant to have as exiles. If we are all the time just taken up with pursuing how to live an exodus life, none of this exilic life makes any sense. It's all about finding peace, security, happiness, Pleasantness, freedom from anxiety, freedom from the taunting, bothersome din of someone or something else. But if we're called and understand that we live in exile, we expect a discomfort. We actually acknowledge that it's part of our vocation. We step toward God and refuse to bow down to the golden statues, the silver statues, the small, thin statues, the statues of our heart, the statues of our mind, of our race, of our politics. We refuse to bow down to anyone or anything but the God who alone holds our life. Often people think the greatest drama of chapter 3 in Daniel is the fire and God's deliverance of the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. That is a wonderful scene. But the dramatic height of chapter 3 is that this moment, when they are capable of distinguishing the greater danger from the lesser danger, and they are absolutely unhooked by the lesser danger, and able to say, we will not bow down, and our lives belong to the God who holds us in life and in death. And in that is an unexpected, peculiar capacity to live freely, powerfully, as exiles in a world that wonders, is there any evidence in the reality that we live that there is a God who sees and knows us? Is there a God who enters a place of suffering 
places of need, of disruption, of confusion, of assimilation, of conformism that ends up actually quenching our life rather than actually enabling our life to thrive. Daniel 3 is a call to an unhooked life. It's a call to live as peculiar people. It's a call to mirror the character and life and freedom of God that knows that there is only one who is worthy of worship and no one and nothing but that God. The question we have to ask ourselves then is where do we think we live? And what kind of life do we nurture? And how much do we need one another to help teach us what it means to live as faithful exiles? To see and know and respond and trust to people who are simply beyond our own capacity, who teach us what it means not to assimilate, but to be peculiar people that look like the God that we worship. That is our vocation. Pasadena and this area of Southern California needs Lake Avenue Congregational Church to be a peculiar people. We need you to be a people who look like the character and love of God in Jesus Christ. Fuller Seminary exists to propagate church leaders and Christian people who in various ways are going to be peculiar people. Not to breed systems of conformity and assimilation, but a peculiar life, justice, mercy, love, forgiveness that bring to our exilic existence an entirely different vision and hope. Oh God, by your grace, may this congregation be led in faithful, exilic life. Thank you for their ministry, their life. Thank you for our beloved brother, Greg Waybright, for this pastoral staff, for its leaders, for the manifold ministries that it expresses. May its life be a peculiar life that looks more and more like the uniqueness of your love, mercy, and justice. May we learn, O oh God, that it is only before you that we bow down and let all reality take its cue from there. For we pray it in Jesus' great name. Mm-hmm.